Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The Unconventional Soldier. A military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading the second part of this podcast with Vietnam veteran John Tullett. We continue to discuss John's tour in Vietnam as a Ford Observation Officer, known as an FOO, and we finish off with Desert Island Debts, which is his choice of book, film and luxury item. Anybody that's been a soldier in Germany, John, or even in a woodblock in Sennybridge knows that uh, comms can often be difficult, and in the jungle it's especially challenging. So what communication setup did you use? Initially, we had the American 25 set, which was a very good backpack, and it was a dial system, and then it was replaced by the 77 set, which all I can describe is that it was a free. Comms were just quite quite extraordinary. And one of the New Zealand FOs at the end of the end of Balmoral, he basically stated that on many occasions he, he was getting 40 kilometers um, with, with his uh, backpack. The 77 set. On a whip antenna? Yep. Unreal. So wow. What we also did was Claymore wire. We would um, get get the the Remy, the workshop, to produce an attachment. Claymore wire onto the, the set and then onto the three-foot whip. And so if you stopped, you prop the guy behind, the, the ack, the flaggy, um, whoever could grab it, and just stick it up. And already it's six foot up. Or you can launch it up into the tree, up into the tree. And Claymore wire is bakshi, um, and it's got very low resistance. That was an excellent way of doing it. And I told my father that, and he said, oh, yes. Well, we always used to carry bulldog clips with a similar sort of thing, the Don 10. And in the Bocage country, where there was um, the fence lines and wire, you clip your radio set onto that, and you made use of the, the German, never knew whether you were on the radio or not. 
you're saying there alone that you deployed within an artillery umbrella. So these artillery fire support bases, were, they, were there a lot of them or is it just one or two in your, within your patrol area? How much fire support did you have? It, it depends on the, um, the, the operation. For instance, if 9RAR went out on an operation, let's, let's put the fire support bases in the middle and 360 degrees round and with a 10K radius. And the the battalion would operate under underneath um, underneath that. That is very s- simplistically um, per, put across. In the firebase, it wasn't just the guns. There could be two batteries, and that often was uh, that often was the case. The northern part would be one battalion, and the other the southern part would be another battalion. You'd have battalion headquarters. Um, you may have a troop of tanks in there. The battery area was about eighty meters. Um, very very tight. The everyone was dug in. The front guns were bonded. We had our own little double O bulldozer, and the first of the wire had gone up, and wire was necessary, and that was always outside satchel throwing range. They used to have satchels, bamboo pole, and they would have um, plastic explosive or what what have you inside the satchel and they could flick it further than you and I could ever throw a grenade. So it was about 50, 60 metres out and you had the concertina and the wiring went on for three, four four days. Um, And that was one of actually one of the big failures of coral was the lack of wiring. And then the following day, further digging, sandbagging and a battery within a period of five days would use 25,000 sandbags on the inside um, because if it happened to be the wet, you had to keep the integrity of that bund up and the sandbags um, gave you that. Obviously, command posts down and, and, and a lot. I've read a few accounts where it describes Vietnamese sappers as being very skillful at infiltrating through wire. A lot of times they hardly had any clothing on were still able to get through and uh, sort of create a breach into the wire. Was that, are those stories apocryphal or are they quite true? No, they, they, they were. They, they, they were extraordinary um, extraordinary soldiers, to say the least. One can't take that away from them. One of the things they would do would make use of thunder and lightning, which would be during the night. Lightning blinds people. And if you're on sentry, apart from having a one of your eyes taped over, so you've got the other eyes okay. It, you get blinded by it. The thunder going off um, covers any noise. And here was one of the things at Coral. They were bouncing the wire. It hadn't been pegged. In between, they, they were doing it, and they had been doing it um, at, at other locations as well. Personally, I can't talk from personal experience uh, of, of, them, of them coming through. But, yeah, wiring... And it was concertina. This was very much the BSM's thing, the BSM's party doing that and um, low wire entanglement. And in front of each of the buns were was at least six claymores. They all had them on fire, all of them, or only one and six. And you mentioned, John, that you had pretty much guaranteed artillery fire support. How guaranteed was your close air support and gunships? The... American uh, flew cap all the time. So you could get American air support very, very quickly indeed, close air support. Putting a timing on it, what, 10 minutes, something of that nature. 
but the drawback was that they may um, only, I've got Canon and I've got uh, Napalm. Actually, I don't want that. I, I want 500-pound bombs. You take what mm. you had. Napalm, a horrific weapon, but actually not, effect, not very effective in the trees. In the open, actually, a metal bomb, fused airburst, is far more effective very big area but when you see see a phantom coming over and and it's dropping one of these things and you've got sort of a clear view and they're, they're not streamlined at all you just see this thing going and tumbling through the air and you say, oh, i hope he's got it you can actually bring it to 50 meters not that i've ever seen that that close but um that's that's the book figure. That'd be a scary moment watching that tumbling towards you. <laughs> not <laughs> 50 meters safe. Not, sure. <laughs> not sure I'm going to be 20, 50 meters away from a napalm uh, canister. Not uh, at all. I wouldn't like to be a Vietnamese soldier. <laughs> and of course, the VC and the NV had to rely on much less sophisticated weaponry. It's like they're panjis, just bamboo, hardened in fire, sharpened up. And that, that you tread on that, it'll take you out. And that's one of the reasons that Jungle Boots ended up with metal plates in the bottom, wasn't it? Yeah. But then they had the Mark I Alpha. Imagine it sharpened up and then underneath, a bit like an arrow, it gets it, um, it cut in and then sharpened underneath again, but it's held together. You tread on that, it goes over, but um, your your foot is angled and it comes in by your ankle. Ingenious. Yes, it, it's um, very clever. Absolutely ingenious. So, John, what were the main lessons you took from the jungles of Vietnam? Um, Pre-jungle warfare training. In other words, training up to operate in, in in that environment. Absolutely essential. Business that you feel you can fly out guys in the jumbo and um, give them three or four days in the trees and said, right, you're ready to go. That, that, that's not an act of war. And did that happen at the start, John, did it? Guys were hardly getting any training. No, we, because we, not, not with us, not with the Australians, because we had been involved in um, Borneo, a confrontation, which was seamless, that finished, and we just straight went into Vietnam. But it happened mm-hmm. with the Americans, horribly so. Right. And so the, 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 the pre-training, and um, it went to, this is Nui Dat, this is where the, the camp is. I knew which which my tent was going to be. So when I arrived, I could walk straight to my 180-pounder in the lines. And then three days later, I was out in operations. Navigation um, is absolutely essential. You know, at uh, JWIC, they, um, I think they, they do five days um, of it, and it's pass or fail, and right, rightly so. It, it's an art. Oral adjustment is the practicing of, of that, and um, direct support. I'm a grand, great fan of it, and I know we don't have enough FOs and all the, the rest of it to achieve this sort of thing. But being embedded with an infantry company, crikey, yeah. it makes a lot of difference. Yeah, once in a while, if you, you've been living with them for four months in the trees. All he wanted to do was to get back to the New Zealand battery and um, hang a beer on with them um, before he then went back again. Um, 
but you got to know all the idiosyncrasies. Never split an FO party. And I've had many discussions on this one. Split an FO party in the jungle environment, and they're not, not likely to see them again for an awful long time. And if you're out in the trees four months, you have weakened yourself. And anyway, you don't have enough radio sets um, to, to achieve that. Personal admin. It's a classic, isn't it? <laughs> and looking after the body, because you can end up with rashes and all sorts of things. I told them I could have sold Metacam. Not Metacam. That's what I give to my dog when he's in <laughs> You probably could have sold that, John. <laughs> um, baby, baby rash stuff. All right, yeah. You when you're a bit... Um, the cream, is it pseudocreme? That, that pseudocreme. thing, but it is... If you've got... Um, crutch rot and you really apply that why go to the medic it is that 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 sort of that sort of thing we shaved that's unusual yep very good very good reason one actually it's quite good for morale to to have a to clean your face people say oh well if you cut yourself well don't cut yourself but if you have a beard and you you get um, you get wounded around the face i tell you what the surgeon does not like you because you've got all this all this tufts of hair and the scarring is uh, is um, is pretty pretty awful. So um, we didn't. So we didn't. Um, mm. We we shave and vitamin C tablets stops all sorts of things like pr- pr- prickly heat, which is a horrible thing. Um, you're not getting fresh fruit, so vitamin C was the thing. And they were rare as hands teeth. And I had a good friend. In the New Zealand SAS, part of the um, ANZAC um, SAS out there, and he used to drop me off bottles of this. So the party, company commander, two IC and the CSM all had my vitamin C tablets, keep them happy, especially the CSM. He looked after our food. Um, <laughs> Always got to keep him on oh, side. Yeah. So thanks for that, John. Well, the next thing I'm going to ask you about is just the, the Battle of Long Tan, which we've mentioned uh, once or twice already. And uh, as I think I said before, it took place on the 18th of August, 1966, in a rubber plantation in Phoc Toy Province, South Vietnam. There's been a couple of good books about it and a not-so-good film recently. And uh, the action was fought between the Viet Cong and the People's Army of Vietnam units and elements of the 1st Australian Task Force. And as you've already described, artillery was key in this action. And it was actually described by your friend who was an FOO in the contact that it was a battle winner. Was it recognised at the time as a template on how to use guns in support of entry into the jungle? And was it discussed in your pre-deployment training? Well, if I work that backwards, um, yes, yes, it was. And obviously this this occurred two years before before I deployed out there. And then we we were able to have the FO giving his talk to us when in in New Zealand they were under the un, the umbrella and they would not would not have been moving outside of the umbrella but the things that come out of I've already mentioned um they were carrying 100 rounds per man straight after that it was up to 140 that was a big lesson for for the for the infantry in fact the fo party most extraordinary scene where the csm goes up and he salutes the fo who salutes him back and this is where all this rubbish is flying around and he said sir can i have your small arms ammunition the delightful way that the the fo sort of replied and said um, 
by all means, CSM, but can you leave us five rounds each? <laughs> so they, they kept five rounds each, and the, the party was only three, and handed um, all the other out, the, the remainder. And uh, chatting to the FO later, he said, well, we had to have something if it all went totally horribly wrong. It's a good illustration of how far that battle had come close to the edge of defeat, I think, when you left with a company sergeant major going around taking ammunition off people to that extent. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Bringing in, in rounds, he brought them into 50 metres, with the 155s obviously being being further, being further right. And over 3,500 rounds were fired. The weather was absolutely atrocious. Funny enough, one of the, the number ones who was there, um, I met up with him at the Passchendaele firings, uh, the 100th anniversary. We weren't allowed to fire in Belgium, so we had to do it in France, believe it or not. I was a gunner on, on the New Zealand gun. He was, he was the number one uh, shouting at us, etc. He said the weather was absolutely appalling. The pack how is meant to fire six rounds a minute. And he said, nah, it was doing 10 rounds a minute. Um, we were just shoveling rounds um, out, out of the barrel. And so one of the highlights, not highlights, it was a low light, uh, was a strike of lightning ha- um, hitting the the bog, the, um, the battery literally <laughs> <laughs> exploded on the ear. He said that, that was not pleasant. Of course, the other thing was with the L5, which the Americans called the Derringer, pistol in the pocket was not was not a gun for for the season. Yes, you could pack it up and move it in a one one three, but it didn't have the range. It didn't have the robustness. What was the range about twelve k's or something, John? Um, if if that, it was just it was just not up to it, and so that's why we went to the M two, which was the American. Uh, we all described it as the American equivalent to the twenty five pounder. That was obviously one hundred five and, and and bigger. But very reliable, very very solid. And the other thing, I've mentioned the bad weather. There were two aircraft, USAF aircraft, flying overhead, ready to assist, but they couldn't because of the weather. And it mm. just and I use this as uh, as a means of saying artillery indirect fire is guaranteed all weathers, day and night. And long term produce that, um, prove that. And to give an example of the M- M2, I know this is getting away from long term. We were at a firebase Avenger. This is before I was then a section commander or a troop commander by British Army terms at Firebase Avenger. Suddenly 12,000 rounds were dropped on top of us with Chinooks and Sky Cranes and were to, to take part in this. It was a massive fire plan, absolutely massive. The GPO was going. Bananas saying, what the hell, we haven't been told about this. We sat down with the plotters working out um, all the necessary data, and then we started firing. And it is the one and only time that I've been on a gun position where they said, number one, out, and straight away the the tiffies were onto the gun, checking the recuperators, tightening up the rest. The gunners were throwing uh, the cartridge cases out out of the way and getting the... um, the unused charge bags, well away from any, anything. The mortar platoon, this was three RAR, they left two people at the at their mortar line, one on the radio set, the other one is a runner. 
And they all came to help. Number one ready, number one in, number two rest, and number one out. And so the guns were taking time. And the place was just covered in um, in cordite. And here's another side to it. Cordite is poisonous. People were actually beginning to bend in the middle. And these are strong guys um, because they were breathing breathing this in. And this became a thing that we had to get tea, urns of tea in there so that they could drink heavily sweetened to get rid of the stuff and also give them um, the... The, the the boost. I think you you touched on it briefly there, John. I think most people don't appreciate that at a gun position, if you're firing over in support of that battle, all that ammunition, the sheer physicality of unpacking all those rounds and moving those rounds around in itself would be actually very physically tiring too. It is. Um, my final point is that 150 105 rounds with cartridge weighs 6,888 pounds or 2,131 kilograms. Gunner Smith, could be anyone, but was therefore bending down and picking up 6,888 pounds, passing it to another gunner and then to a loader who rammed it. And this was over a period of two hours. This is Olympic gold medal weightlifting. And it is. I remember reading once, John, and again, it may well be one of those apocryphal stories about a former US general who had fought in Vietnam and he was at an embassy function over in Vietnam after the war ended. And he ended up talking with a former NVA commander. And during the conversation, the American stated, you know, you never beat us on the battlefield. And the NVA officer is alleged to have said that may be true, but it's also irrelevant. And a lot of that could be applied to Afghanistan as well, I think, these days. What did you think of your NVA and Viet Cong enemy? The VC were locals. They could be doctors, chemists, teachers. They could be um, laborers of the, of, of the land. And they would form up into these, what they called companies. And then Fuktui province, it was D445 Battalion. In Fuktui, they were, they were pretty aggressive. But after a while, they became, um, it was a quick contact. And then they would break contact like no one's business and, and, and go. I think their their strongest attribute was they knew the land. If they were part of a, a jungle area, they knew they knew that jungle and the tracks. So they became very much like guides. Whereas the Pavan or NVA, as we tended to refer to them, North Vietnamese Army, very hardy. Their regiments were three thousand in in strength. Their intelligence gathering really was quite extraordinary. I, I say the privilege because um, it, it was there and the infantry hadn't gone and kicked it over by the time I got there, was a sand model. Now, we British Army sort of um, live in a little tin can with the little strips and you, you do your sand model. This goes to something totally different. They're chips of bamboo and they make a house. And the house has got three windows. The model has three windows. And it's all paced out and all, all, all the rest of it. And if there are five houses, then there are five five houses there. And that is imprinted. And that is what you're going to, got, going to take out. However, the big drawback, if there is a house that they haven't picked up on, the sixth house, can't be there, so we won't attack it. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually, in essence, occurred at Battle of Coral. We had one six one battery out on the side. I won't go into the politics of what happened, but they, they were separate. Um, the attack went in, totally ignored this battery that had arrived at last light, that was not in the best position, 
they were firing into into the flat into the flanks. As I mentioned, their distance they could travel uh, was extraordinary um, at at night, and they would travel three abreast. And what they tended to do was they'd have their lead man, which was local who knew the track. Then you had the the scout group, which was four. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then falling behind would be the main body. And the local man, if he sniffed anything... And this is another thing that comes out of being being in the jungle, the lessons, etc., is sixth sense and instinct. The jungle teaches that. And then you had the, the four-man party, which invariably would have RPG-7 on the shoulder, and then you have the main body a bit further back. And that's that's how they would move. And if the um, the guide suddenly stopped and said that, he would just carry on. And they would hold. But if you carried on and you then attacked, let's say you're in an ambush and you attack that uh, the, the four-man group, they will squeeze on their RPGs, and they just go. They arm almost immediately, hit a tree, shrapnel, sound, and all the rest. They can turn, upset an ambush. The main body coming behind will just break track and just storm in. And that is why. Our ambushing, we teach of having early warning parties very quickly indeed. We no longer put out early warning parties because they were like early warning goodbye parties because con- conceivably they could then have 50, 60, 100 NVA charging straight over them and going and taking the ambush in, in the flank. A very good mate of mine, he was in an ambush and I think it was something like the, 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 they were hit on the side by 600, but they were in a triangular, oh. and it was artillery. And one sat there several kilometres away on the 77 set, listening to him, calling in fire. They were, they were hardy. After all, they'd, they'd walked all the way down from North Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh Trail. They made use of the um, opium. This reduces your stomach, the requirement for, for food, so... Where ten pounds of rice may last you for twenty days, it lasts you for forty days, type of thing. If you're feeling your feet are feeling tired, well, actually you've got that. And when you're going to launch yourself at something like a fire base, which is a bloody affair for them, at the best coral was a very bloody affair for them. You just up up the opening, the the opium, and uh, we'll go and take out that fifth house. Sorry, the sixth one I don't recognise. <laughs> There is, um, you know, there's strengths and there weak weaknesses. But not to be underestimated. No, I we had a contact, 
and I don't know why, but they withdrew over open ground, possibly because the trees were far too away on, on, on the right. And I brought in fire. I actually brought in airburst, air and there was a, a nuller going through the middle of this area, a little like a stream. One almost felt like um, saluting them, because as opposed to pepper pottering forward, they were going backwards, um, withdrawing, sort of that those fives withdrawing and going to ground and the other five and it was exceptionally well exceptionally well done they got to the the far mm. end meantime a platoon had been sent around i was then firing into the trees and doing it and moving it in front of the um the platoon and then when they came and cleared through the open area their blood trails but not a single body they had they had taken all their wounded and and bodies and that, that's training U.S. troops returning from the war uh, received, uh, oftenly received hostile receptions. What was the reception like for New Zealand and Australian troops? Well, I, obviously, I can't um, answer for Australian, but um, for Australia, but in New Zealand, there are a lot of people that were very anti the war. To give an example, one six one, when it was given the um, what's it when you the freedom of the city, freedom of Auckland. Um, I was involved in that that parade. There, there, there's um, not a large group, but they were quite um, vocal, and they started throwing paints and all sorts of things. But the people didn't were not supportive, and it was only until 2008 when um, the government suddenly said, "Yes, we acknowledge that uh, 3,800 and whatever it was, 84 New Zealanders." had served in Vietnam courageously and all the rest, and they had the, the Vietnam weekend. And that was at that mm-hmm. particular stage, roundabout then, that they acknowledged there was such a thing as Agent Orange and that uh, quite a few guys were su- suffering from that. And they put in things which this country personally could could think about very easily indeed, not about Agent Orange, obviously. But as an example, I can pass on, if I have it, I don't know if I got it. I can pass that on to my son and daughter. They carry New Zealand Veteran Affairs, Veteran Affairs Agent Orange cards. And if they go down with one of these cancers, they can take that into to the GP and said, oh, yes, you've got that. That one there, that one there. You phone that number and straight away the New Zealand government have got their money aside to look after that in, that individual. They can pass it on to their children. It'll go down to two generations. They brought in a whole host of other things as well. For, for instance, I, I'm getting a bit of infirm and I've got a big lawn. So someone comes along and, and does the lawn for you. But it took until 2008 for that to to um, sort of um, click in. Does that cover all? Yeah, does that cover all veterans now, not just Vietnam oh, it veterans? Covers, it covers all, yeah. So... Why did you transfer to the British Army, John, and what were the main differences you found compared to your experiences in the New Zealand Army? In 70, by 72, the New Zealand Army had shrunk. I, I was uh, adjutant of uh, 16th Field Regiment when it all came through, the withdrawal, and whereas before we had the ammunition to go and train, we had all the good gear. It was literally overnight. Our Land Rovers... It may seem all rather small and petty, but they, they were all very new and very smart, were taken away from us, and they went into cold storage. And Land Rovers that we had sort of 20 years before suddenly appeared. And some of them were 
had been stretched by towing the pack hull, and the the doors were tied up with string. And I, I thought, well, we're we're withdrawing. Uh, there is nothing left apart from um, being posted up and down New Zealand. I love the military and um, the country, the people, everything. But I was uh, of the age I wanted um, more. So um, I was able to transfer in, in 73. I wanted the, um, a change. And, um, well, one got that. And then, of course, after five years in Germany, that got actually rather rather tedious because it was the same um, exercise being turned out. Uh, so I seconded to the Oman, which was absolutely great, uh, br- brilliant. The difference, the age. When um, the age of, and I'm talking now, then as opposed to now, so I can't answer, answer now, but the age of recruits joining the New Zealand Army there were 25, 26. Age of recruits in the British Army is certainly not that. They're a hell of a lot younger. These guys were mature. A lot of them were were country boys, came off the farms. They they knew how to, to wear backpacks, uh, Trapper Nelsons, as they mostly were, uh, carry rifles. They hunted deer. And these were the guys that, that came in. They thought and they could think outside the box. So if you sat down and you gave um, said, right, these are the orders to do one, two, three, any questions, yeah, why haven't you thought of four? So you had mm. to have that. I have not. I have thought of four. I'm not doing four because of. Okay, boss, you won't. You won't get that here. And, and you certainly mm. didn't then. When I joined Second Field, I went in for the interview with the commanding officer, and I'd been walked around by the adjutant. Went in to see the CEO, and he said, "Well, what do you think? Be honest." And I said, "Well, I didn't think I was joining a boys' regiment, sir." <laughs> <laughs> he had a, a scar here from um, from Malaya, and that twitched. And I got to know, I became his adjutant, and, and his eyes went extra blue. And I thought I was going to die there and then. And he said, explain yourself. And I said, that, that's the reason. I said, I haven't seen so many young men, and the sergeants are so young. But that, that's the way, that's, you know, that's the way it was. But I was on a massive learning curve. You know, we had four three twos. I had my own. Unbelievable. Before, I just had my backpack. And, and things. this was all brand new. It was magic stuff. And so one was learning a lot. But at the same time, trying to put across stuff to them that I had learned. John, you instructed at the uh, Joint Warfare, uh, Jungle Warfare Instructors course for over two decades. So how did you get involved in, um, in JWIC in Brunei? You can tell us a bit, a little bit about what you taught. Yeah, I've been posted to headquarters infantry. Um, there's SO2RA. Brigadier Training Infantry had pulled my card and seen my background and said, I want you to go out there and have a look and then come back and tell me about it. So I went out, thoroughly enjoyed my, my time out there. In fact, he got onto the CEO and said, where is my staff officer? He should be back here by now. <laughs> so I was put on the next plane after about four weeks, I think, I'd, I'd, I'd been out there. And I went in to see him and he said, um, well, what do you think? I said, well, it was very enjoyable. I said, I didn't ask you whether it was enjoyable. I want your your view. You are my staff officer. So I gave him. And I said, um, these are good. These these um, the changes here should be, etc." 
and on the indirect fire side, as if that is a demonstration. A demonstration is a meaningless exercise. It doesn't teach anyone anything apart from those cynical enough know that those who are producing the demonstration have fired out every conceivable error. So amazingly, rounds appear on target, on time. Well, what do you want? I said, I want ammunition for the for the Gurkhas, and I want to um, teach oral adjustment. Section commanders, they, they all know upwards, all know how to um, call in fire in the jungle. Okay, go away. So I went away, worked out what I wanted, went back into him, and I said, I want 400 rounds per course. He didn't blink, and he said, okay, do it. Went into SO2 ammunition, infantry, and said, this is what you've got to do. And he said, you're not having 400. I said, yes, I am. The brigadier has just told me I can have it. You must have been dead popular. <laughs> I, I tell you, I was with the Gurkhas. That, that started it all going. I talked about the guns, artillery in, in the jungle environment. I talked about armor because I'd operated with armor in the jungle and, um, and also the engineers and close air support. I taught the business of oral, oral adjustment in the classroom, handed them the, my, my little um, crib for them, A5 crib. Then we would go out into the trees. We would fire the 400 round, practicing. No GPS. If I saw one, I'd tell them I'd throw it down the, the Yama. There's about 30, 40 of them down there. <laughs> and you're going to locate yourself by mark mission. So they'd, we'd fire three rounds, three rounds. They'd take their bearing. And I said, yeah, good, good. Well, now we need to tighten that up. Oh, Corporal Goring, how's your GPS going? Still trying to find the location, sir. The GPS never located where we were, but six mortar rounds had. The gentleman will do it again. Then we did the oral adjustment, which is the triangulation method, and then we did the stopwatch method, um, and then the next, the next course came, half a course, carry on in the afternoon. I had enough ammunition, I knew, to be able to draw some back. I got FO parties coming out, as long as they were of the right background, seven Two nine four seven three, and actually we had one from HAC who were actually who were actually quite excellent. So then I took them separately, and we then had our own where we actually patrolled, calling calling in fire and doing 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 the necessary. I also did have a demo where over this flat ground and there were trees at the far far side, and said, "Gentlemen, this is what this these little eighty one millimeter mortar runs." do in the jungle. And they could see them going off in the canopy, halfway down and on the ground. And they could see branches flying off and God knows what else. That is what you're calling in. Never forget about it. I then gave a talk about um, about Vietnam, and that was very much on the infantry side, talk about attack on, on a particular bunker system, tunnel system. And then later on, I gave a talk on the tunnels. People started asking questions. So I then researched, produced um, a diorama of a tunnel tunnel system based exact from North Vietnamese um, tunneling manual, so to speak. I also worked with the with the Gurkhas, and it was great. It got me out of the office. So 
<laughs> Your time at JWIC coincided with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Did this change the way soldiers operated and thought when they turned up for jungle warfare training? I would like to think so. I know, for instance, oral adjustment was um, the triangulation method and the use of the stopwatch was used. What was successful and was taught, and it's something that we were taught in New Zealand, but it didn't have a name. Of course, that was introduced by one of the OCs, and that was sign awareness. That saved lives. Undoubtedly, that saved lives. So, as usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Ditch, which is the guest choice of book, film and luxury item. So, John, what have you picked for this podcast? I find it actually exceptionally difficult, book-wise. And so I've gone for four books. Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. And I do that because I carried this with me everywhere whilst in FO in South Vietnam. Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T. Lawrence, because it's brilliantly written and it gives a fantastic idea of that part of the world, which I um, operated in. Defeat into Victory, Slim, and The Jungle is Neutral by Chapman. I first read it as a boy in Malaya, and that sort of sparked my imagination and things of that nature. Well, I've read all of, I've read all of them except Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I've never read that. Takes time. <laughs> yeah. So that's what it looks a bit heavy going to me, yeah. that one. I don't know if it'd be above my head. And if you go and sit in Wadi Rum, which I've done, it sort of all comes in. My wife and I have slept there in Wadi Rum, and it, it, there's something very magical. So what uh, film choice would you pick? I'd p- pick The Longest Day. My father was there. And your luxury item? A wind-up radio. And being very green with long wave so that I could listen to the world service. And I say that I carried a small trans, um, Toshiba tranny in my backpack in Vietnam and I could plug that into my ear at night and to actually listen to Big Ben in the middle of nowhere and listen to the news of what was going on outside in a wind-up radio, I wouldn't have to carry batteries. <laughs> Always looking to cut weight. <laughs> Kev, what's your choice this week? My choice this week is a book called Britain's Treasured Islands by Stuart McPherson. It's a great book, coffee-sized book, great present for people as well. I was very fortunate Kev gave me a very (laughs) generous present this year. I can't argue with that. And this book is about the British, uh, the UK's overseas territories. Some you know, some you don't know. Some places I didn't realise were UK territories and some of the most difficult places to get to. Historically, some of these locations were fought over, obviously, as various empires across Europe, we went across like the Falklands Islands. We take it from somebody else, and then it became ours. There are some interesting places like the Pitcairn Islands, which are now inhabited by the descendants of the mutineers from HMS Bounty. So nine of the mutineers landed there, and the population is now all named after the mutineers. The book covers the history. It also covers the wildlife covers how to get there and the bbc produced a uh, tv series in which the author then traveled to each one and you can still get that on catch up but i found it a fascinating look into history because a lot of these places just haven't changed because there's no commercial value to them they're just the uk's little little, little pieces of uh, treasure dotted around the world surprise boris isn't uh, trying to populate them to solve some of his problems my choice this week uh, ties in with the podcast, really. So 
Australian and New Zealand troops had a good war in Vietnam and were considered highly capable. So my choice this week is a book called Delta Four by Gary McKay. And I bought this book along with another one with the same author called In Good Company at Sydney Airport about 20 years ago prior to flight back to the UK. And I finished both of them on the flight. They're really good. So McKay was a 20-year-old who enjoyed surfing and rugby when he's conscripted. And he was selected for officer training in 1968. Um, in Good Company covers his conscription and tour of Vietnam and ends nearly three years later when he's wounded by NVA machine gun fire during a bunker clearance battle. And he's later awarded an MC for his service. Delta Four is a much different book, subtitled Australian Rifleman in Vietnam. And he interviewed the soldiers of his old company and also went to Vietnam to interview his former enemy. And it concentrates on the rifle company as uh, an entity. It goes as- over aspects of training, how they operated and fought in the jungle, and what tactics they used. It's also very good at covering leadership, the relationships between officers, senior NCOs, junior NCOs and the diggers. And the final section is called After the Blood Cools, and this looks back on his experiences and reflection after a few years. The themes in it are, was it worth it? Any regrets? Their view on politicians, their experience of war, and how they felt when Saigon fell. When I was doing my research for this podcast, that particular aspect, how they felt when Saigon fell, a lot of those themes tie in with probably the experienced soldiers who fought in Afghanistan and recently went through. Um, both books are highly recommended, especially for junior NCOs, who I think personally would get a lot out of them. So reaching the end of the pod now. So John, has, as we said at the start, was looking at a book on Borneo and World War II, which will feature another podcast coming up soon. John, can you just give your the listeners a brief outlook on what the episode's about and where they can obtain a copy if they want. Yeah, the the book starts off with um, five gunner regiments being raised in the UK. They're all air defence. They sail for Basra, all in their desert uniform. Equipment is all desert-wise. And after leaving South Africa, and this is in two different convoys, the first convoy goes to Singapore. second convoy goes to Batavia or Jakarta. In, in Java. It then follows their deployment. One regiment remains in Singapore and they become part of the Gunner 600 who will perish on Balalai Island through malnutrition and finally execution. The other Singapore regiment goes to Sumatra. It then follows their fighting. Then there was surrender. The three prisoner of war camps in Java getting worse and worse. And it follows their progress until um, 1945, where the three death marches occur, about 164 miles. Uh, the Australians arrived, the fighting to take Borneo back, the use of Z Force, which was special forces, then um, the movement of the former prisoners and internees to Lab One, the hospital, um, looked after amazingly well. Then onto ships, they were all given a sheet of paper, which was the order of silence, basically told them they were not to, to talk about their experiences to family, friends, press, anyone. And really what I believe is a shocking behaviour that occurred in, in the UK when they arrived back. And I call it the Borneo Graveyard with the day 4145. And what occurred there was truly shocking. I part well, majority funded the book. The book is through here in the UK or anywhere overseas is through me. It's hardcover, 492 pages. It is £25. That's that's the book. That's great, John. We'll look forward to covering that in a bit more depth on another podcast. So 
that's it for another episode. So thanks to John for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as normal. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and liked the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there as these two platforms are where the majority of our downloads come from. Finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support through his company, ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com